Hi everyone and welcome to Ask Division. On today's episode, I have Dr. Hussein. He is a TV doctor and to be quite honest, every time I see him on Instagram, he is doing something new every time. Running, skipping. Oh my god, I just don't know. I just don't know how how he has time to fit everything he does in his life. So I thought, let's get him on Astavision and see what's see what his life's all about. Thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you. It's uh, it's an honour and uh, it's great to chat to you, Aster, anytime. Oh, thank you. So tell me, because my grandfather was a doctor, and. My dad always tells me stories of how he used to get up at night and put his coat over it. He had his pyjamas on. He just slung his clothes over his pyjamas and went straight out to, um, you know, to, to patients in the middle of the night, even surgeries and stuff. Just, uh, And I'm interested to get from your perspective how you started on your medical um, life and being a GP. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, the, the days of sort of um, GPs sort of covering the patch sort of at night time sort of out of hours uh, and that being the same GP during the, 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 those days are very much gone. Um, there's pros and there's cons to, to that one. Um, but for me, like, I, I guess if we think about why I wanted to become a GP, it was the, the breadth. I've always been someone that likes to look holistically at things rather than just focusing on a few things. So general practice very much from a breadth perspective, you don't get any larger. And also, because as you sort of touched on right at the beginning, I have a lot of interests that span outside of medicine. And I wanted to do a job where I didn't have to do the medical part full time. So I could do it part time and get in sort of my experiences elsewhere. And GP is quite good for that because you can have your clinics. And if you want to have X number of clinics, you can have X number of clinics. You can have less and obviously um, uh, managed to fit other stuff around. So from the flexibility and just the breadth of medicine that you're covering, general practice was uh, the one for me. So did you, did, as a, at a young age, did you always know that you wanted to do this? So, like, so I come from a Middle Eastern background, and when you're a kid in a Middle Eastern family, there are only three jobs that you are allowed to do. Um, and that's basically, you're going to become an engineer, we well, can become a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, that's because uh, the mentality is that you, you know, that's the only way to succeed in life. I don't agree with that personally, but although I am grateful for them pushing me um, academically, I can't say that you know I've lost out that way. But so I had, to, I had the choice of those three things, and for most of my life, I probably leaned towards engineering. My parents were both engineers. My sister went into engineering. Um, that's kind of where I was heading, and. About year 12, if it's still cold out these days, I'm assuming it is, so year 12, so like second, penultimate year of secondary school, I, uh, this is going to sound really bad, but I watched ER. And, uh, and <laughs> I watched ER, and I remember too. there was a doctor called Carter on there, and he was just amazing. I was like, wow, this dude's, this dude's so cool. You know, if I could maybe get a little bit of that coolness... Um, then, uh, then that would be wicked. So I genuinely uh, probably started thinking about medicine seriously by watching ER, which is, isn't like probably the most, the greatest story. You know, I didn't go in specifically from noble means, but that got me interested. And then I realized that medicine was probably a better fit for me, even though 
like maths and physics were always my strength academically, I I liked people. I liked engaging with people and and um, and just understanding people. I always wanted to know why people did what they did, why they fought what they fought, and so yeah, medicine is what it ended up being. And uh, and I, I'm grateful that I did go down that path in the end. Well, let me tell you that you are. I think you're as cool as Doctor Carter, definitely. <laughs> We 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 met on Steph's pack lunch, didn't we? Where you're a you're the TV doctor on there, and I just thought, wow, you know, because I, I meet some human beings and they 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 really shine bright, and you you're really you're a really lovely, cool person. So I, I'll I'll give you that. I I was oh, like, I, what, I, I like that. I like Doctor Carter has maybe been successful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Mission Carter's uh, accomplished. <laughs> when you were when you were young and when you came to that realisation in year 12, did you have a caring for people then or did it develop? I, yeah, I've always, I've always cared in the sense that I find it hard when people are in distress in particular. I don't like that element. Um, and I think I always like to problem solve. Now, that's not always good because sometimes there are some problems that can't be solved and it leads to sort of frustration and helplessness. That's always something they've had to work on. Um, but yes, I like to problem solve. I don't like seeing people in distress. So it kind of sort of was a, ma you know, a marriage that sort of worked out quite well, trying to combine the two. Um, you know, like going through, through sort of secondary school, uh, you know, you're you kind of discovering yourself quite a lot, isn't it? You know, you, if I go back to how I was in, let's say, the early years to to near the end, it was very different. And I wouldn't say that I was sort of specifically, there was like a particular event in my life where it triggered that sort of feeling that I wanted to become a sort of healthcare professional. Um, but it was more just that sort of realization that I wanted to connect with people. I just, I just found that, I don't know, you just meet so many interesting people and you learn so much from not just listening to them, but actually like connecting with them um, and understanding them. And, and, and in particular, those that I don't agree with, that those are probably the people that I, I, I find most interesting. When they come up with ideas, I'm thinking, oh, God, that sounds a little strange and not quite right. I try to understand why they think like that. It's quite helpful for myself, because in this world, like, we can often believe strongly about certain things, but that's normally down to our programming and how we've sort of been brought up. But sometimes you just need to have a bit more of an open mind and listen to other ideas. Um, and, and don't be afraid of changing your ideas subtly. It doesn't mean that you were wrong. It just means that you're learning, um, and you're probably going to go for the rest of your life doing that. Is that why GPs, because I've, I've been to my GP sometimes, and wh whether it be one person or another, because you tend to see different people in the practice, but yes. they, they all say to me, well, what do you think? And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. it's just, it, I just, I've, I've, I'd love you to bust this myth for me because I'm like, well, I, 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 if I thought what I thought, then I wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, do you know, that's a really, really good point. And do you know what? It's actually, it's what they're trying to do is, is something called ICE. So it's a consultation technique, which stands for I, which is ideas. So the patient's ideas. C, the patient's concerns and E, the expectations. Because what can sometimes happen is, is the patient can sometimes have an agenda or a concern. So let's say someone comes in with tummy pain, right? And if I think that, okay, let me, let's say I think it's gastroenteritis, just a tummy bug, no problem. 
if the patient is sitting there quietly thinking that, well, they've got bowel cancer because the father died when they were 45, and I don't know that, um, and I send them out of their room going, oh, no, don't worry, it's totally fine. They may feel like, oh, maybe he hasn't listened to me, or maybe he didn't right. um, sort of understand and he hasn't covered that. So often the GP will ask, you know, what are your thoughts? Just so that they can understand. You may come up with a brilliant idea because you have some information that you haven't given yet. It's hard to always give the GP all the information that's gone on. And two, if there is something that maybe is not what you should be thinking about, but you are, he can therefore, re or she can reassure you and say, you know, like based on the symptoms you had and because of X, Y, Z, I think, for example, bowel cancer is unlikely in this instance. But he can make sure that he matches your expectations. So definitely, if, if your healthcare professional is asking what you think, etc., it doesn't mean that they've run out of ideas. Not at all. They just want to make sure that, that your ideas are being met and that you haven't got one that's that's different to what the GP's currently working on, that he's just not going to, you know, touch Are you worrying, underlying, yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah, because you'd be surprised how often there's a mismatch. It is quite often that sort of the patient's worried about something else that you're not even thinking about. Occasionally you'll be like, oh, God, that's actually quite a good idea. I, and, and when the patient explains it and they actually give you the information that they hadn't done initially, you go, yeah, that's sound. We need to explore that. Other times, it's just making sure that you don't miss, like, reassuring them in that area. Thank you for explaining that. I'll, 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 I'll go into the GP's practice now with a different outlook. Not that I spend a lot of time there, but um, well, so <laughs> you, you, you're not just a GP, are you? You, you, you're a character. You're, a, you're on TV, and um, you, you, you're an athlete. I try. I definitely try. You know. Um, like nowadays, like it, you have to pinch yourself when, when, when you say those words, but yeah, like it's, it's been a long journey Esther, because, you know, if you, if we were doing this interview seven, eight years ago, you'd be seeing a very, very, and hearing from a different person, you know, um, like seven, eight years ago, I was 94 kilos. Um, I had just been diagnosed with uh, fatty liver disease. Um, so that's where. You know, we obviously can have fat that we can see visibly on people, right? But we can also have fat in our organs. So we call this visceral fat. So fat in and around organs. And one of the main places it goes is the liver. And when fat is within the liver, often for the vast majority of its time, you won't notice any symptoms. You'll, nothing would have changed for you. But if fat stays in the liver for a long period of time, it can lead to cirrhosis. So the exact same process that you get with, let's say, alcohol consumption, you get that with, um, with, with fatty liver disease. And now fatty liver disease causing cirrhosis is more common than alcohol causing cirrhosis in this country. So it's a growing problem. But anyway, so I, I was diagnosed with that on an ultrasound scan because as doctors, we have to have regular blood tests. And one of the blood tests just picked up that my liver was, was not operating as it should be. Um, and my father, in fact, has got really big problems with his liver, again, due to excess weight. And, and my whole family, in fact, we've all struggled with weight um, in one way or another. And that was the, the why that I needed. I didn't want to go down the same path as my father and all the struggles that he's had. And so I therefore made changes. And that's where I got into lifestyle medicine. So now I'm what, what you call like a lifestyle GP. So yeah. I've, I've done extra training in and around lifestyle, which is all about physical activity, nutrition, understanding stress, connecting with others, those kind of things. And through that personal journey is where I got my professional interest in that. Because you'd think that as doctors, we would be trained in lifestyle 
to a high degree during our studies. But during the six years, I probably got maybe four hours on lifestyle. The rest is all just on, you know, anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, all that stuff. And so I've gone from 94 kilos to um, 69 kilos. And, and in that process, like it was all just tiny steps. I just put lots of little steps. So the first thing was, okay, try and lose a kilo. You know, never try and set your goal as I want to lose 10 kilos. That is a huge mammoth challenge that if you set that, that as your goal, you're only going to get a reward once you've lost 10 kilos. Up until that point, it's just you're waiting for that to happen. And you need more rewards to the brain for you to keep going on that journey. So instead it'll be like, I want to lose one kilo. I want it to be 93 kilos. And it took a bit of time, took about three or four weeks, got to 93 kilos. And I was like, yes, that's fantastic. And then I just continued to set small, more smaller and smaller goals until eventually you're getting the weight down. And then I was trying to do more physical activity. And I call it physical activity rather than exercise because a lot of people think of exercise as like a punishment. You know, that, oh, they've had that muffin, so therefore I've got to exercise. And, and it shouldn't be, because when you do it like that, every minute is torture. You know, you're looking at whether it's the treadmill or the bike, and you go, oh, God, it's only been three minutes. Oh, God, I've only burnt 60 calories. When you do it like that, the brain doesn't like it, doesn't it? Time starts to warp. Time starts to go so slowly, and the, the clock's moving so slow. But if you make, like, the movement that you want to do, and it can be any movement, there is no one exercise that fits all any physical activity works um, if you make it fun let's say going on walks with your friends or uh, having a cycle um you know with your partner whatever it is i just made all the physical activity i did into something that i wanted to do because i could have a chat with people or or go go visit somewhere so often i'd want to visit somewhere new and i'd be like okay let's go see this stately home or whatever the attraction was and let's do an hour walk while we do it. Let's half an hour walk there, half an hour walk back, you know, park further away so that we can make it into more of an activity. Um, and that's how you just tailor it on. And then just step by step, I was finding that I was getting fitter and fitter. And then you start to do regional races and you start winning them and you go, oh God, you know, like, wow, like that's something. I couldn't even run a kilometre before without like dying. Like I was now, you know, I, I did an 80 kilometre run at one point and you just think, well, when I crossed that line, I was like, there was one point where doing a kilometre literally scared the living daylights of me. And I've just done an 80 kilometre run without stopping. You know, it, it blows your mind. But the key is, if anyone's let's say, listening to this and wants to make changes to their own lifestyle, becoming an athlete was never my goal near the beginning. It's just that as I've made those little steps, I've built a staircase where eventually I need to think of another step to move on to. And so you didn't... It's about a journey. You want to keep moving in a certain direction. And for me at the moment, it's just trying to explore how much can I, you know, achieve athletically, given that I've gotten to this position. And I, I find it really, really rewarding. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think, you know, when I look at people um, doing exercise and I, I see people going to the gym, certainly in my position as a person with a disability, I think, oh, my God, you know, should I be doing this to achieve health in my life? So I almost have to do everything through diet. And I, 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 would you say that's more of a discipline as well? Like, yeah, for, absolutely. You know, for, for, for those that have um, physical impairments, yes, you're of course on a much more difficult position when you're trying to access physical activity. Um, now, nutrition actually does provide a huge chunk of your good health. So very much focusing on that 
will bring you a lot of benefits. But what I would say is, look at where you can incorporate even some physical activity. Don't use the metrics of those that you see on TV or Instagram or whatever as the judge of what is good physical activity. Any movement that gets you sweaty and a bit breathless, that is physical activity and it's just as good. Um, so, like, I know that I've worked with a few charities and one in particular, the Mason Mile, is one designed for those with um, disabilities. And so I saw that on your Instagram. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so one of the events that I do each week is I have a free um, mile walk that we do on very smooth ground. It's accessible for wheelchair users. And even if, let's say, they don't have arm strength to push the wheelchair, just simply moving and being with the group in, let's say, an electric wheelchair, they're getting the benefits of being outside, of speaking with others, fresh air, and that's enough. That's enough. And, and I think it's all about not trying to set your goals based on what people tell you or what you see. Just start with something small and then see where it goes. See where it goes. Don't let others limit you. Just find out where your limits are yourself. Explore those limits and, and just play around in those limits. Don't, don't think about what it is that you can't do. Just work on what is it that I could do a little bit more of than before. And that, that's as simple as it can be. That's really good advice. What would you say... There's so many, because there's so many diseases and illnesses going around at the moment. And I don't know, it just seems more prevalent these days that, you know, you see it more and more in the media or advertisements. And how, how, how in your eyes, how do we avoid disease like cancer? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, it, it is more prevalent, if I'm being honest. Statistically, it is. And, and, the majority of that is due to what we call the obesogenic environment. So that is where the environment that we live in at the moment is very different to 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, etc. And it's just simply not conducive with good health. Mm. And that's a massive shame because what happens is, and if I give you examples, if we start off with nutrition, the kind of foods that you can buy in the supermarket now that are prominently advertised, that are sold in multi-packs, that are, you know, uh, maybe are focused on the discounts. They are all foods that are designed to be addictive. You know, we were on the show yesterday and we were talking about sugar, weren't we? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and these are foods that they have, even from how they were designed in, for example, the 50s, the amount of sugar and salt and fat that they now put into them is skyrocketed because they're competing with other brands. Everyone wants to have your palate. And the best way they can do that and the cheapest way they can do that is by just pumping full of sugar, full of fat, full of salt until they reach what's called a bliss point. And this bliss point is when your brain triggers the most dopamine. And dopamine is this hormone that makes you feel good, quite simply. Yeah. And so when you eat that chocolate bar, you have that magnum you feel good at that time because the brain goes, oh, this is fantastic. And you may think, yeah. why does the brain want to set us up to fail? You may think, surely the brain's cleverer than that. Why would it set it up? Well, that's because our brain has evolved to live how we've mostly lived for the last 200,000 years, which is with food scarcity. Out in the savannah, if you found a food that was full of calories, that kept you alive. So the brain would tell you, don't stress out about the lettuce. If you found this food, have loads of this food because you, you only need to have X amount of that and loads of the other greens, etc. that you're going to have to forage for. So mm. 
it's a natural phenomenon and how we've designed our, our sort of ecosystem now has vastly outstripped evolution. It takes tens of thousands of years for our evolution to adapt to the kind of foods we're eating now. Um, and I, don't fear, I fear we don't have that time. So for many of us, like, it's not about blaming individuals because that's what these industries will want to do. They'll want to blame you. It's always the individual's choice. You know, I even saw in an article yesterday in the BBC and they got a GP to speak about, you know, bringing cakes into the workplace. And she goes, oh, well, it's individual's choice. You know, you can choose not to have the cake. Well, how many of us can choose not to have a slice of cake? You know, it's just not how we're wired. It's just not, even I will, if there's a slice of cake going, I'm having it. Okay, like, even myself, who cares very much about my health, there's only so much you can do to stop the natural cravings. You know, I don't crave about, you know, salads. I love eating salads. I love the taste of them. I predominantly eat those kind of foods, in particular at lunchtime. But if, if, if you ask me, what are you craving about? No, it's fried chicken. It's, you know, it's ice cream. It's chocolate bars. It's human. That is human. Anyone who says that they crave around celery, they're lying. They're just straight <laughs> up lying to you. Okay. So, yeah, it's this obesogenic environment. So that's the nutrition. Then when we think about movement and physical activity, that's been removed out of all of our lives. Even whisks are electric now. You don't even have to whisk the thing up. Hoovers are now becoming robots. Um, lawnmowers are now becoming robot mowers. We are engineering the movement out of everything we do. So there's going to be a point where we're just going to be in it. You know, we're just not moving. There's just no movement whatsoever. And we've got to find ways to just move where we can. I see it's kind of like, I don't know if it's like herd mentality though, isn't it? Because, you know, if we see other people doing it, oh, you know, oh, that, that Hoover must be good because it's got like 200 really good reviews. It it must be a really good robotic Hoover to get. It's like, we, we seem to have lost our kind of self-control and individualism. And obviously that is affecting our health in the long run. But they, they, they use that because, in essence, our brain always wants to be efficient. You know, back in the day when we had to cover hundreds of kilometers to gather food and for safety, we never wanted to do that. We just simply had to do that. You know, if, if you told those those people back then, the cavemen, oh, no, don't worry. We can build an Aldi there. We can have uh, you know everything that's going to clean up for you. We're going to provide you with total safety. You don't need to worry about predators. Um, then the brain's going to go, yeah, because it needs to be efficient to survive. There's no point wasting energy if it's not needed. And that's the problem. So we've got this brain that's set up for a world that isn't the one we live in right now. You know, it's set up for a very different world, a world where survival is much tougher, where you need to be constantly moving, constantly searching for food. And that's the issue, you know, and it's a real shame because there's actually so there's, there's a few tribes where they've done. Uh, analysis on uh, there's one in Mexico called the Ramamuri and there's one in Tanzania called the Hatsa. So now these guys do not have any of the mod cons that we've got. They live a hunter gatherer lifestyle. They just search for food, eat food. And as an example, the Ramamuri in Mexico, they will travel up to four to 500 kilometers on foot every week, every week. There's now, some people that won't do that in a year in the UK. Even now, right? Oh, yeah, even now, even now. And what's a shame is, though, since they've become famous for doing this, they've had a lot of um, more attention and people going into the tribes and suddenly things like Coca-Cola has been brought in, cigarettes brought in. But, and suddenly they're starting to see a decline over the last 10 years because these things get introduced 
And that Ram and Mori are not special. They don't have anything that we don't have in their brain. As soon as you introduce them with these products, which they didn't even know existed before, they're just going to go the same way as we are. Because back then, when they did the analysis, I say 15, 20 years ago, their cancer rates were barely noticeable. Their cardiovascular disease, so heart problems, nothing compared to what we've got in the UK. Yet they have no hospitals, no sort of doctors, as we would call them, doctors. Mm -hmm. And they were having better health outcomes than us. They had lower blood pressure, lower obesity rates. Type 2 diabetes pretty much didn't exist. They didn't even know what that was. And, and just give it another 30, 40 years, now that we've given them all this stuff, they're going to be right with us. They're going to be right with us with the same problems. Do you think, do you think it's to do with um, stress around, you know, because life's got hard, hasn't it, lately, and people are more yeah. and more stressed and mental health is, um, is, 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 is really prevalent at the moment. And So do you think people turn to this kind of food to just to kind of almost i don't know it's almost cost um uh, uh ease of living comfort yeah it's a way of coping isn't it like how many of us have had a tough day at work and go oh, i deserve a takeaway now and that isn't even you choosing it that's your brain telling you because if we go back because it's always how the brain works if we go back to psychology in periods of stress Nearly always, that was when you were um, in a period of concern about food. Life revolved around food and survival. So when the brain takes in any form of stress, whether it's a relationship stress or work stress, whatever, it always computes that as, oh, our survival's at risk. Our survival is at risk. We need to eat something sugary and, and, and fatty. We need to store. We need to build up our fat stores because I don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks because I'm stressed. And so that's why it's natural that people then delve into, like, have a whole ice cream bucket because, you know, when they're super stressed, they just want to have that. And the brain loves it. And it goes, yes, 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 I like it. The problem is now we have a lot of pressure to look a certain way and to be a certain way. And that's where the guilt comes in, because the guilt isn't an automatic thing. If we didn't have the pressures of society to be a certain way, you wouldn't feel the guilt element afterwards because the brain would be like, yeah, we've done good. You know, we've increased our stores. Yeah, I like this. Um, it's, it's, just, it's just the way that we have to then fit into society that then provides that sort of fe feeling later where you go, oh, God, what have I done? What have I done? See, but yeah. people aren't in control. They're not in full control. That's what they need to realise and be kind to themselves that they don't make these mistakes because they chose to make the mistakes. They made it because their brain was driving them. And it's very hard to turn the wheel to another direction when the brain is getting these stimuli saying that you're stressed because it wants to relieve that stress. And that's why I said on the show... When you are, let's say, in a really stressful time in your life, don't even think about making a change to your lifestyle. Instead, focus on what it is that's causing the stress. Because you won't be able to improve your diet. You won't be able to do more physical activity until you've tackled that stress. Because, you know, it will drive things. It doesn't matter what kind of willpower you've got. You will run out, I promise you. It's true. It's totally true. And, and I think when you when you talk about outside pressures and... Even when I look at a magazine, you know, I used to think, oh, my God, do, should I look like that? But, you know, I've grown into my in my life and I'm 40 years old now and I practice inner peace and I meditate. And I think, you know, oh, you know, no, this is me. Like, I, I don't abuse my body. Yeah, if I fancy 
a bit of chocolate like you said yesterday. I'll have a little bit, but I'll also eat fruit and but I, I won't I won't look at someone like I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger years and years ago and think now, oh my god, is that what I should like? Because we're unique, aren't we? You know, and, a, and I, I'm, yeah. I, I'm the believing that if we treasure ourselves and our uniqueness, then surely, surely that brings better health. 100% agree with you. 100% agree with you. We've got to learn, and it's, it's a dirty word, but to love ourselves, as you said, treasure ourselves. Some people feel bad for doing that. Like, it's, it's not a, a trait that people seem to... Um, want to encourage those that you know if, if, you, if you love yourself it comes across negative doesn't it but yeah. we need to because when we start doing that we'll start taking better better care of yourselves and you touched on a really important topic there where, where you will have that chocolate bar but you'll also do the healthy elements and that's the right process to go on because what we found if people try and say do you know what I'm that's it I'm not having a chocolate bar anymore I'm not gonna have any of these sugary foods that's it I'm, I'm done with it we we'll actually find that the vast majority of them, after two weeks, will then be consuming more of that product than they even initially did before they wanted to reduce it. And that's because willpower is not a skill. It's not a skill. What I mean by that is, for example, um, let's say I know how to juggle. Now, Esther, if you asked me to juggle today or in two weeks' time or when I woke up or just before bed, the juggling ability will be roughly the same. Okay, I won't suddenly realise that I can't juggle and it's all gone. Now with willpower, it can be vastly different. There can be times where you'll be like, nope, that cake, don't want it. I'm okay, I'm okay with my pear. There's gonna be other times when there is no chance you're having the pear over the cake. There is no chance in hell that that's gonna happen and you're just gonna go with the cake. And that's because you need to think of willpower as a fuel in a tank. So every morning you wake up with a certain amount of fuel in that tank. And you need to use it wisely. And what I hear time and time again from patients is that they will start off the day, and for two thirds of the day, from the morning till about, I'm gonna say six o'clock, they're really good. You know, they have used all their willpower. They haven't eaten anything unhealthy. They've had a lunch, you know, in the, like a salad lunch. They've had a healthy breakfast, lots of fruit. It's all going really well. And then the evening comes and things start to fall off, okay? And they start having this snack and then that snack. And it just all goes around and they feel awful at the end of the day and they feel negative. What's happened there is they've just used all the fuel up and they've run out. And once you've hit bottom on the tank, floodgates open. Floodgates open and you can't battle against the natural desires that are coming in your head. So instead, maybe having the chocolate bar at lunchtime, that's fine. That's fine. Have it with your salad. Have it maybe a healthy lunch and you have a chocolate bar as well. If you, if you interdisperse and choose your battles wisely, you're more likely to be better over the average day. You're not trying to achieve perfection because that's not possible, but you're just going to try and achieve something better than what you're doing before. So start small and spread it out over the day. I, I can't recommend this enough. And then as you keep doing this, the fuel tank will increase. And so therefore you'll find that you're better able and there's more times that you can practice well. But don't suddenly go from having a, a diet that you don't like to suddenly having, you know, some kind of perfect Instagram diet of salad and seeds and, and that kind of stuff. That's just not achievable. 
always start slow and spread it out across the day. Don't do really well and then give up. That's great advice. What's on your agenda this year as, as far as self-development? Because I know you, and because uh, you're, you're always pushing, always pushing, 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 and I love it. Absolutely. I think that's the key. The key is that you want to always try and be a bit better than yesterday. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Don't worry about, you know, what they're successful at. Instead, like, use it to, you know, you know, just see how incredible people can be and to motivate yourself. But always just focus on yourself. And, and so I always like to push myself and do new things. And this year, so if we start off from a, a physical activity perspective, so I've got the, the long distance world championships. I somehow managed to qualify for the world championships this year, long distance triathlon. So I'm going to Ibiza in May and I've, uh, I've codenamed the project, Project Don't Come Last. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's the project, Don't Come Last. Um, and I was telling my wife this, I was like, I've got Project Don't Come Last. And she goes, oh, no, 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 I don't think you'll come last. And I was like, oh, thanks, that's so nice. And she goes, normally someone gets injured. Or <laughs> <laughs> I was just, oh, yeah, I guess. I guess so uh, so yeah so this project don't come last in may in ibiza um so that's from a physical activity perspective from a nutrition perspective um one of the things that I've, I've sort of helped develop is in the area of the nhs that i work at which is in leamington um, we provide group sessions for free all on the nhs teaching them about nutrition um and about sort of how to sort of make those little changes to live better and I've managed to secure through one of the local charities um, funding so that other areas in the county, in sort of Warwickshire, Coventry and Solihull, um, to also have these same clinics. So I'm going to be doing a lot of work trying to help train up those areas. And it's fantastic to see this because um, often we can spend lots of money on certain areas, but I really feel this will make a difference for, for patients. And in, and in the clinic that I've run, I found that they've really valued just having that space to talk about these things. And a lot of them are surprised that they can talk about those things in a, um, in a, in a sort of GP surgery setting. This is a shame. You'd think that your GP surgery is the place to find out about health. They shouldn't have to go to Instagram to find that out. Yeah. They shouldn't have to be Googling to find that. It's the GP surgery should provide that kind of info. So therefore you know that it's reputable, that it's been checked, that you know, that we aren't just gonna come up with stuff, you know, for, out of nowhere. So, yes, hopefully we'll, we'll get it spread through the county. My aim is to just get those clinics successful and working in that county. And therefore, maybe Touchwood will get more interest to then spread this out nationally one day. But um, that's the first aim on those two fronts. Well, from, um, from Mission Dr. Carter to Project Don't Come Last, if I can help you with, um, <laughs> if I can help you with anything, anything at all, please, please, please do ask. And because um, I, I think... I I think you're a ray of light and I think the NHS is very lucky to have you and uh, all the charities you work with and all the organizations with, I think they're really lucky. And I'm not just saying that. I think, you know, you, you are, you're a really nice person and you care and it's rare, isn't it? It's rare these days. Yeah. Like I think one thing that I would say is like a lot of staff are, are struggling with something which we call compassion fatigue, which is when you are just overworked, super stressful, with tough working conditions, you know, the way that you can conduct yourself can change. And so if you do ever let's say, come across um, a clinician that you feel, oh God, they're, they're a bit abrupt, they're not right. 
I know it can be very easy to get frustrated and annoyed, and, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's, it's not acceptable and everyone should be treated with compassion. But just just ask, you know, ask the clinician, you know, oh, how are you doing? How's it going? Because sometimes, you know, when you let's say you're near the end of the day and, and they are just completely worn out. They're humans. They are humans. There's nothing special about them compared to you. And they're just as liable to have stress impacting their lives. And we've seen the well-being and the physical health, the mental health of clinicians just really take a dive these last three, four years. Um, and so, yeah, try and try and be compassionate your end, even if you're not receiving that compassion, because you'd be surprised how it can suddenly turn the, the consultation around um, if that clinician then notices and, and, and they will really appreciate you showing that care. Um, and I know it's not the first thing that comes to your head, but just give that a go, because um, I'm telling you, it'll be worth it both ends. Both of you will get more out of that consultation if there's that sort of connection emotionally between you. I think that's a good example just to take in life generally, isn't it, as well? 100%. 100%. Most people that, let's say, cause, you know, irritation or harm or, you know, hurtful things, normally they're going through a really difficult time themselves and they're just projecting. Um, and it can be so easy to take these things to heart really quickly and not think about where that person's coming from. But just take that extra moment um, to do that. And normally you can sort of help to sort of solve both ends. You know, you get a better experience and also they will as well. Dr. Hussein, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on After Vision. Thank you. It, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you.